I'd ask if you have your Bibles that you turn to the book of Philemon. Several weeks ago, I decided that I would like to uh, spend some time in the shortest books of the Bible. And uh, at that time, I selected uh, Philemon as the first uh, subject that I would want to turn my attention to and and hopefully preach on. So Philemon is in uh, the New Testament. It's toward the back of your Bible. Uh, It's just a page. So if you're not paying attention, you'll miss it. It's right in front of the letter uh, to the Hebrews. And so as you turn there, let's uh, pay attention to what God has to say to us from this short book. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord." For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Holy Spirit, you are the one who gave us these words through the Apostle Paul, and you are the one who needs to shine your light upon them so that we can understand them and apply them rightly. We ask for your help now, Lord, to set aside every distraction, and we ask that you would bring our hearts into a greater submission to your word. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to speak clearly, truthfully and boldly, as I ought, for the sake of Christ. Amen. Simeon the Stylite was the owner of an unusual uh, piece of real estate. 
Simeon was a Syrian monk in the 5th century, and he spent 37 years living on a small 11-square-foot uh, platform 60 feet in the air. His food was passed up to him by admirers who uh, had a great admiration for Simeon's devotion uh, to fleeing the sinfulness of the world and devoting himself more fully to God. 37 years, 11 square feet, 60 feet up in the air, no email, no cell phones, no social media, no people. After this past week, perhaps some of us are thinking that Simeon was onto something. Who needs people? Right? Wouldn't it be great if we could just get away from people? People who are complicated, people who disappoint us, people who hurt us and sin against us. And before we laugh too much at Simeon, we should keep in mind we've got our own form of escapism or a retreat, of course. Uh, people have called our age the age of the individual, and that's uh, demonstrated at times in a, a desire to flee from the nitty-gritty of real life and real relationships, uh, not by getting up on some platform in the sky, but re retreating to a carefully curated set of, of safe relationships online uh, that we, we mediate through a screen. But the problem with Simeon's approach and whatever version we might choose to take today was stated by another father in the church, Basil of Caesarea. Basil said, the solitary life has one aim, the service of the needs of the individual. But this is plainly in conflict with the law of love. The law of love compels us to be in community with other people. The problem with this, of course, is that an inevitable part of being in community with other people is that you will hurt other people and you will be hurt by other people. Unless you're living 60 feet in the air in a subdivision of one, it's going to happen. Of course, as Christians, we feel this more acutely because as Christians, we know that Christ, through his word, commands us to be part of the church. It's not an option. Yes, we're part of the church in a universal sense, but God also calls us to be part of the church in its local expression. We're to be members of a church. We're one body. We're to gather together regularly to encourage one another, to serve one another, to love one another. The biblical picture of what it means to be a Christian means that we must be in community, even as we understand that such community will result in wrongs done by us and wrongs done against us. But God has a word for us. And he has a word for us in this little book, a postcard of sorts, called Philemon. Because in this letter, God tells us that not only does Jesus change who we are, but Jesus also changes how we are to relate to one another. When we come to, to trust in Jesus, he, he changes us personally, but he also changes us interpersonally. Specifically, we learn from Philemon that, that when we meet Jesus, when we come to know Jesus, he changes us interpersonally by helping us to do one of the hardest things in the entire world, to truly forgive the people who hurt us. Now, I want to acknowledge a challenge that you may have with this sermon today. Because of all the stuff that's swirling 
around this week, you might be tempted to think that I am speaking about that. Now, while I do think that our text has relevancy to some of these most pressing situations in our church life today, I want to be very clear. God is concerned first and foremost with how you apply this text to your situation, not what you think someone else's situation might be. So let's listen to what God is saying to us, and let's work hard to think about what you and I need to do to put this text into action to the glory of God. So we're going to look at how Jesus changes Philemon and then how Jesus changes Anesimus. And then we're going to look at how Jesus changes the relationship between these two men. Now this letter is an open and a personal letter that Paul wrote from prison toward the end of his life. It's written to Philemon, although Aphia, who's possibly Philemon's wife, and Archippus, likely a fellow gospel worker, are also addressed. But the primary thrust of this letter is a personal appeal to Philemon, a wealthy Christian who is living and serving in the Asian city of Colossae. We know that Philemon was likely wealthy since his home was large enough to accommodate the church that met at Colossae. We see that in verse 2 where Paul mentions the church in your house. And somehow through Paul's ministry, Philemon had become a Christian. And Philemon is a maturing, he's a a growing, he's a fruitful Christian. Paul counts him as a friend and a a partner in the gospel. Paul refers to him in verse 1 as our beloved fellow worker. Paul thanks God for Philemon regularly, and he finds joy in Philemon's evident love and its refreshing impact on other Christians. Paul sees the good that God is doing in Philemon's life, and he points it out. We see this especially in verses 4 through 7. Paul thanks God for Philemon because he hears about Philemon's faith toward the Lord Jesus and also his love for his fellow Christians. This is the same way that Paul describes the church that Philemon was likely a part of. He says in in Colossians 1, speaking of the church, we always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Philemon represented this growing church well. And here, on an individual level, is a picture of grace at work. In Philemon, Paul sees a a snapshot of divine activity as Philemon's faith in Christ is working itself out in love toward other people. Now, the specifics of how that that happened are left to the imagination. Maybe it was in how uh, Philemon hosted the church in his house and, and he was hospitable in that way. Maybe it was how he encouraged other believers through his, his speech or his prayers. Maybe he was a, a generous person. We simply don't know. We just know that Philemon had a reputation for loving other people. And this love flowed from a changed heart, which he had had through faith in Jesus. Now, Philemon was not the only person who had experienced personal change in Jesus. Jesus had changed Onesimus as well. 
Onesimus was a bondservant or a, uh, a servant or a slave, depending on your English translations. And it's worth just noting here, because of our, our appropriate sensitivity to this, is that Onesimus' con- condition was not the same as slavery as it took its form here in the 19th century in America, or even modern forms of slavery, which are so pervasive today. These are uh, great evils. That it was not Onesimus' condition. As a bondservant, Anesimus was likely contractually bound to serve Philemon, uh, his master, for several years. And, and generally, what we know from history is that the relationship between master and bondservant was typically one of mutual benefit. And so, while it depended upon the master, uh, it, it just was not the same thing as you might think of when we think of these master-servant relationships. So here was Anesimus. He was a contract employee of Philemon. However, he chooses to run away. Now, he's not just using his allotted personal days, but he was running. Verse 18 implies that as he ran, uh, Onesimus had wronged Philemon in some way. Maybe it was just that he uh, wronged him by not fulfilling the obligations that were due to Philemon, but it's also possible that Onesimus had stolen from Philemon to finance his escape. And Onesimus ran all the way from Colossae to Rome, a distance of over a thousand miles. It would be like uh, someone running away from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and running all the way to Dallas, Texas. He did not want to be found. And yet somehow, Onesimus encounters Paul while he's imprisoned at Rome. We don't know again how that happened. Maybe he had, had had regrets about running away and he heard Paul was there and he sought him out knowing Paul was a friend of his master. Or maybe Onesimus was one of the people in Acts 28 that, that came to hear Paul preaching during his imprisonment about the kingdom of God. Whatever the reason, we just know that Onesimus connects with Paul and there his life is changed. And this little letter emphasizes this significant change in Onesimus. Now, maybe you've experienced this type of change in your own life. Paul says Onesimus, whose name means useful, was formerly useless to his master. Onesimus had not been helpful. He was just a household servant, and he wasn't a particularly valuable one. So maybe the image you can think of in your mind is of the employee who's, who's out back behind the shop uh, with a smoke in his mouth, looking on his smartphone and playing games when there's work to be done. Right? This was Philemon. But in conversation with Paul, this had clearly and definitively changed. Paul told Onesimus about the good news of Jesus. He told him about who Jesus is, his, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And God, as only he can do, he caused Onesimus to put his trust in Jesus. Onesimus became a Christian, just like his master Philemon. And notice how Paul puts it in verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, of course, Paul's not talking here about uh, uh, being a biological father to Onesimus. It's a reference to Paul becoming a spiritual father to him. Anesimus had experienced the, the spiritual new birth in Jesus as, as Paul was the instrument for that birth to take place. And we want to acknowledge, of course, it's true that not every Christian's uh, story is the same. Paul's conversion was quite dramatic. He could point to a time and place on the road to Damascus where Jesus encountered him powerfully and his life was changed. Timothy, who's Paul's co-author on this letter, 
he likely had a lot uh, more of a, a gradual experience. He had grown up being taught the scriptures by his mother and, and grandmother. But regardless of how someone becomes a Christian, what's true is that when Christ grips a person, he changes a person. Sometimes it happens dramatically and in an instant, but other times gradually. But he always changes those he saves. Paul, Peter, Zacchaeus, the demon-possessed man in the Gospels, the woman at the well, all people who were changed by an encounter with Jesus. One cannot know Jesus and not know change in Jesus. The change that comes from Jesus. And this is the remarkable thing about Paul's Gospel. You can't just declare yourself to be a Christian. You can't just personally sign up for it. God must make you a Christian. He must change you. And then you'll confess him, but you will also be changed. And Onesimus had undergone this transformation. Paul says that Onesimus had become truly worthy of his name. He had become useful finally. The change was evident in Onesimus' attitude toward his work and toward others. He didn't just think about himself now. He was thinking of others. He was ready to help Paul in his ministry. I just want to uh, take a moment here uh, for, for those of you here, if you're, you're a teenager, maybe you're thinking, should I make a public profession of faith? You're wondering, am I a Christian? Well, Anesimus' example might be helpful to you. He was a younger man, and when he encountered Jesus in the preaching of Paul, he experienced a change which showed itself in a remarkable way, but a very ordinary way, because now, out of a love for Jesus, he wanted to serve So I just want to ask, teenagers, what's your attitude in the home? Do you find that out of a love for Jesus, God is changing you so that you want to be helpful to your parents, helpful to your siblings, helpful uh, to others? Are you just sitting around playing on your PlayStation or phone, oblivious to others? It's just a simple change that happened in Anesimus' life, but it was a change uh, that, that turned from an inward gaze to an outward gaze that spoke of an encounter with Jesus. And so we see Philemon had his heart, he had his life changed by Jesus. And Anesimus, who had run away from him, had also had his heart and life changed by Jesus. And here we have then two real, genuinely converted Christians, but the relationship between them is broken because of Anesimus' actions before his conversion. And Paul sends Anesimus back. We see that in verse 12. Something that Anesimus does willingly. Anesimus is ready to return to Philemon. He was repenting. He has a a change of direction. Now this needs to be pointed out because forgiveness is conditioned upon repentance. Jesus says this in Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. We're to prayerfully prepare our hearts to forgive to guard our hearts against bitterness, and and even to seek to love those who do us harm. But forgiveness and reconciliation can only happen where there's genuine repentance. But even this is not just left solely to personal and private judgment. We've got a, a process set forth in Scripture for working through this. Here, however, it's a rather clear cut case. 
because Onesimus is making a rather inconvenient trip back to, to Colossae, showing his repentance. He's got the Apostle Paul's endorsement that he's sincere, and his life is so evidently changed from what it was before that there's no doubting that Onesimus is repentant. And so Paul says in verse 17, receive Onesimus back and forgive him. But from one point of view, we could understand why Philemon would not have been ready to forgive Onesimus. Or at least that he might be hesitant to do that. He had proven himself before not only unhelpful, but untrustworthy. Onesimus had betrayed Philemon. He had caused injury to Philemon. Onesimus had wronged Philemon. And in this case, the, the damage was both relational but also material. He had broken trust, but it had also uh, uh, cost Philemon something. And all forgiveness, in some measure, costs the uh, uh, offended party uh, something. The offended party needs to uh, pay a cost. I think about um, uh, when I, I bought my car. Uh, the, the first day on the road, I live three minutes from here. I'm on my street some lady plows into me. I couldn't believe it. I was flabbergasted. I was so upset, right? I could forgive this lady, uh, but even then there was still the cost of the inconvenience of my car being, being smashed up, having to go uh, uh, get it fixed and, and whatnot, right? There was a cost I had to absorb in order to forgive her. And the costliness of forgiveness can make forgiveness difficult. More seriously, in my own life, I can remember a dear friendship from many years ago in which I found out that a friend had been deceiving me in a prolonged and profound way. I was deeply hurt. I was angry. And in that moment, you wrestle with the question, how do you open your arms to such a person again? How do you laugh with them? How How do you cry with them? How do you relax in their company ever again? Every Christian has had to deal with this question before. Someone sinned against you personally. Maybe it was a, a friend in the church, a parent, a spouse, and they betrayed you. They wounded you deeply. And perhaps one day they came to you asking for forgiveness. What do you do? This is a challenge that's thrust on Philemon because one day, without warning most likely, Anesimus, who had truly harmed him, shows up on the doorstep and he says, I'm a changed man. Will you forgive me? But what's this supposed to look like? We know what forgiveness maybe doesn't look like. If you're a parent of children, I'm sure you've gone through an exercise or two where you've had to have that conversation. It's more than just, fine, I forgive you. But Paul tells Philemon not to receive Anesimus back begrudgingly or reluctantly or, resently, or, or, or resentfully, but to receive him back warmly. He says, I want you to welcome Anesimus back as if it was me, your dear friend, your father in the faith. Welcome him back as if it were me walking through the door. And this would require Philemon to to, uh, choose to put aside whatever hurt Anesimus had caused him and to forgive him. It requires an act of the will to work at not holding past wrongs against another person. And Paul wants these two men to be reconciled personally, their relationship to be fixed. Now, the nature and cost of forgiveness make it very difficult at times, as it would have been for Philemon. And Paul, as an apostle, as a spiritual father to Philemon, he could have just laid down the law. Philemon, here's what you need to do. 
I command it. But he doesn't. He seeks to persuade him, to coax him, to, 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 uh, to warmly draw him back into this uh, relationship through forgiveness. And he does that by giving us three reasons for forgiveness. Three reasons for why I can forgive when I've been wronged. Where you can forgive when you've been wronged. So let's think through this together and apply this to ourselves. Three reasons that Paul says Philemon should forgive Onesimus. First truth. We can give the grace of forgiveness because we've received grace ourselves. See verses 18 and 19. Whatever Onesimus owes to Philemon, and this is kind of subtle and cunning on Paul's part, Paul promises to cover the charge. Except he goes on to gently remind Philemon that Philemon is in far greater debt to Paul because of how Paul had led him to salvation in Christ. Paul had been a carrier of divine grace to Philemon. Forgiving grace had abounded to Philemon through Paul. Maybe you remember Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, right? A a servant is forgiven an insurmountable amount of debt by his master, but then he won't go and show mercy to someone else who owes him a smaller debt. The operative principle here is is that we who have uh, received an unimaginable amount of grace from our Father in heaven, we then should show grace toward those who sin against us. Through Paul sharing Jesus with Philemon, this wealthy man owed far more to grace than he could ever possibly pay. The implication being that whatever it would cost him to forgive Onesimus, Philemon could do it because he had received this greater gift through Paul's ministry. And as with Paul, so with us. Christian, how much do we owe to grace? Everything. Think of what you've received. Righteousness from God to cover your sins. Holiness without which no man will see the Lord. The Spirit of God is the seal of your heavenly inheritance. The full and final forgiveness of all of your sins. If your forgiveness of another costs you anything, is not God's account with you enough to cover it? How could Philemon or how could we refuse to forgive when we have been given so much? Here's the second truth that Paul uses to urge forgiveness. Jesus changes how we relate to one another. This is a point that's found throughout the whole of this short letter. Notice how Paul stresses that faith in Jesus brings us in to a new family. While Jesus doesn't eliminate our earthly relationships, we still have, we still have employer-employee relationships, parent-child relationships, etc. He gives us a new relationship that transcends all these other relationships. When Anisimus ran away from Paul, he was just a bondservant. But returning, Paul says, now he comes to you as more, he comes as a beloved brother in the Lord. That's the wonderful thing about being a Christian. You gain a family. Yes, like any biological family, there will be quirks and there will be squabbles among this family. There will be the older brother who's overbearing, the younger sister who talks too much, the sibling who's just a bit higher maintenance, the one who's a little just weird. I'm not that in my family. I'm the overbearing older brother. But they're family. In Christ Jesus, we belong to one another. Brothers, sisters, you share the joys, you carry the sorrows. 
Notice Paul's emphasis on the family ties we have in Jesus. Timothy, our brother, he says in verse 1. Aphia, our sister. Philemon is, is said to be Paul's brother, verse 7. Anesimus is Paul's child in the faith, verse 10. And now he's a brother, verse 16. Again, verse 20, Philemon is described as Paul's brother. In Christ, through faith, we are family. We belong to one another. Paul makes a similar point just in a different way in verses 5 and 6. Basically, these verses set up the whole letter. He speaks fondly of Philemon's faith, working itself out in love, and then adds, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, the word sharing here in verse 6 can also be translated as fellowship or partnership. So in other words, Paul prays for Philemon like this, that Philemon's real experience of communion or fellowship with these brothers and sisters in Christ, that would result in Philemon understanding the good that God wants us to do for Jesus' sake. So by faith in Jesus, we come to belong to one another. We've got a a deep, a spiritual fellowship with one another. And Paul prays that that this reality, our our spiritual communion with one another, it would give us a knowledge of, of the good that we should do toward one another. Maybe you can think about it this way. If you were born into a royal family, you would know that one day you will wear the crown. And because you belong to this group, this royal family, it would shape your understanding of what you're supposed to do, the the, the way it looks to live a good life in that role. You would know that it's a good thing for you to learn your languages or know the difference between a salad fork and a dessert fork. Your familial connection would naturally inform how you're supposed to live. And it's the same here. Once you realize that you belong to your fellow Christians by virtue of your belonging to Jesus, a growing faith will begin to realize that there are certain implications of that fellowship. This is how I'm supposed to act toward you. And one major implication of that fellowship, which Paul spells out in this letter, is that we're to forgive one another. Now, we're going to have a time of prayer after the service. and Maybe you're not sure uh, how to pray right now, and that's okay. But this would be a good prayer for Harvest Church, that the fellowship that we have by faith in Christ would lead us to know how we are to act toward one another so that we're doing that in a way that pleases God. This belonging to one another empowers forgiveness. The third truth to fuel forgiveness. Forgiveness refreshes our fellow Christians. In verse 20, Paul underscores this request uh, that Philemon forgive Onesimus. He says, yes, brother, Paul writes, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. So receive Onesimus back and forgive him. And in this way, refresh my heart in Christ. That's what he's saying. Paul's already recognized in verse 7 that Philemon's faith, it, it brings refreshing as, it, it, as, he, as his love is in action. And now Philemon is telling, or Paul is telling Philemon to forgive Onesimus. And in this way, he can bring refreshing to Paul in a specific way. Refresh my heart, forgive him, be reconciled. Now, many people will acknowledge that forgiveness is good for you. Forgiveness is good for your body. Doctors have told us that forgiveness can lower the risk of heart attack, improves your cholesterol, betters your blood pressure, among other benefits. We also acknowledge that it's good for your soul too. 
Yet we rarely think about the benefit that forgiveness has on the people around a particular relationship. When we make a commitment to forgive someone, we're not just doing something for that person. We also have the opportunity to do something for the people who are looking on. Now, perhaps the most tangible illustration of this is when mom and dad are in a disagreement. Right? This is distressing to the kids. They don't like to see mom and dad butting heads, uh, the lack of laughter at the dinner table, and what a relief it is when they finally make up. Right? The effects of forgiveness uh, overflow the boundaries of this immediate relationship. Forgiveness, yes, forgiveness conditioned on repentance, but forgiveness is like a breath of fresh air to those who get to witness it. Whereas disharmony in our midst saps us of our strength, forgiveness and reconciliation adds to it. So what a helpful incentive for Christians who are filled with the Spirit because we want to refresh and encourage the people around us. And so we are ready to release people from their debt to us. And so we pray for that to happen in us and in others. What would it do to your home if God helped you to forgive your Christian spouse or your brother or your sister? What encouragement could you bring to others if God was helping you to forgive someone who had said something deeply painful about you? You just decided to reach out to them and say, can we talk? Maybe just start with a note. The Bible tells us that forgiveness is a duty that we owe, but it's also a duty that leads to delight. God commands us to forgive, not uh, forgive, uh, to not forgive is to show that we're strangers to grace. Because how could someone who's truly felt and understood the forgiveness of the Savior be unwilling to extend or at least struggle toward forgiving others? But forgiveness also brings delight and refreshment. It did for Paul, and it'll do the same for us today. I want to keep it simple to close. Who do you need to forgive today? Is there a fellow believer that you've been harboring bitterness toward in your heart? Who is it that you would struggle to sincerely pray for? Or maybe just their presence in the room puts you on edge. Perhaps you find your speech just getting harder and a bit edgier when you talk with or about that person. Or maybe think about it this way. If, if, they, were, if they were in your small group, you'd leave. Now, perhaps they've truly wronged you. I understand that. And forgiveness is going to feel hard and painful, and you're not sure that you can do it. But this wonderful letter helps us move forward in grace toward that. Move in grace toward your fellow Christian, uh, toward forgiveness and reconciliation, because we have received much grace. Therefore, we can give grace to others. God's account is sufficient to absorb the cost. We can forgive because we belong to one another. We're, we're family. We have fellowship with one another in Christ Jesus by the Spirit. We, we share in this faith together and we're able to forgive one another. And we have the opportunity to refresh our fellow Christians as God leads us in real forgiveness of those who have wronged us. It's a hard thing, but God is able to help us in it. And may he grant it. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And Lord, 
It's a good word, but it's a hard word. As anyone who has ever wrestled with whether they could forgive knows. But we thank you for these truths that, that push us toward our brothers and sisters. Lord, give us grace. Give us the power of your Spirit to not just know these things, but to put it in action and to know how to wisely apply it in the messiness of our real-life relationships. Lord, help us to be a gracious people, ready to forgive. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join me in standing as we sing together, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. blessing now. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.